turn to the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be reading in chapter 2 this morning. This is a critical passage, a critical part of the story of Jesus coming to earth. Um, If we miss the significance of what is happening in this encounter, it's a familiar story of Jesus healing the paralyzed man. If we miss the significance of, the, of what is going on here in this particular story, we, we are in danger of misunderstanding the tension and conflict that, that, that rises up between Jesus and the religious elite in first century Judah, which ultimately leads to his crucifixion. Um, it is a, a marvelous, wonderful an account of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Um, it's exciting to see, and you can, you can tell, you know, we're, we've been talking about Mark as this story, this dinner theater that was being uh, uh, presented all throughout the Roman Empire. People were gathering together, and, and, and somebody, a trained missionary, would have this whole gospel memorized and would, would act it out for the people engaging them in the story. And this is one of those pieces that just draws you right in, this, uh, the amazing account of Jesus' healing power. Um, but there is so much more. And if we miss it, um, it, it throws off our understanding of, of, of the responses that Jesus gets from the Pharisees, from the Sadducees, from the priests, from the teachers of the law, etc., etc. This is a crucial passage. Let's read it together. Uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And when he had returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that, that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned him within themselves, he said to them, why? Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, straight away, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. You remember the context, what we were talking about last week. Jesus healing the man with leprosy. We talked last week about how that was one of the tradition of Jewish understanding of Messiah that developed in the in the in between years after uh, the the uh, the last testimony in in um, uh, out of Israel and then to the time when Jesus that that time of silence those four hundred years there had developed this tradition that if a the Messiah, when the Messiah would come, that only he would be able to heal a Jewish person with leprosy. There were all of these laws and regulations and rituals that, that were in place by God back in the time of Moses, when Moses was giving the law, that, that dictated how you would determine whether somebody was a leper or not, whether they actually had leprosy. It was all centered around the role of the priest. He was the one that was to do the checking, and he had these instructions on how to determine whether somebody actually had leprosy or not. And then God went on to continue to give instructions about how that, if somebody ever had been healed by leprosy, what was the process that, that the priest again would go through to be able to identify whether that was truly a healing and whether that person could once again reintegrate into society. We talked about how in the, the writings of the rabbis over the years that, that out of the 63 tractates that are made up the, the Talmud, the sacred writings of the Jewish people, one whole section, one, one whole tractate was devoted to this question of leprosy, of, of how to determine whether somebody was leprous or not and how to determine whether somebody had been healed or not. Within the temple, after the, the second temple had been built, they actually designated a specific room for lepers. Any lepers that, was, that were going through the process of being, uh, of being determined whether they had been healed or not. They had t made a room specifically for, for the eight days for the lepers to be able to stay in that room to go through the ritual, ritual purifications that were called for by God through Moses in order to, 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 to prove that they had truly been healed of leprosy. And in all of that, we know that, that, that the priest then would have record and detail of everyone who was, had leprosy and everyone who would be healed of leprosy because of the laws that were in place. And with all of that attention and all of that focus on lepers, how many Jewish people had been healed of leprosy? Not one. Zero. And that's why they had determined the reason that God had gone to such detail of giving them all of these instructions was because when the Messiah came, he would be the one 
who would be able to heal a Jewish leper, and only he. And that's one of the ways that God had made for them to know who the Messiah was. And so Jesus heals the leper and instructs him to go and show himself to the priest, to go through that ritualistic process to to show that he had been cleansed, that he had truly been healed of leprosy. The priest would have already had record that that man was a leper. It wouldn't be a case of them coming to say, well, did you really have leprosy? No, they knew. They had gone through the process. Whenever point this man had become leprous, And it had been determined that he did indeed have leprosy and had to remove himself from society. And now he was coming back. And he was healed. In Mark, Mark says that many had gathered together. If we, we looked last week at Luke, at the the testimony of Luke in Luke chapter 4, and Luke said that Pharisees And teachers of the law from all around Galilee and all of Judah, even Jerusalem, that they had all come up to Jesus to hear. (laughs) They got the message. The Messiah has come. And they were now coming to, to test this out, to see for themselves if this truly was the Messiah. They came expecting to see the Messiah. And what's the very next interaction that Jesus has with them? He heals the paralyzed man. So, everybody is showing up because they heard all the things that Jesus had done. Jesus had told the leper, don't tell anybody, didn't really follow that. He spread it far and wide that he had been healed. And you can understand. The dude has been separated from society because of this disease for however long. What excitement to be able to get back together with family. We, we talked about this last week. We have a bit of an idea of what it means to be isolated from others, Right? And to suddenly be able to embrace your family again. To enjoy a meal with friends. and You can't keep that quiet. So everybody knew and everybody came. Who was this? This wasn't a secret that there had never been a, a Jewish person healed of leprosy. Everybody knew that. Everybody knew the tradition that that the Messiah would be the one who would be able to to heal a Jewish person of leprosy. They heard there's a Jewish person healed of leprosy, so they want to be on the front lines to see this guy, what he does, who he is. And so there were many there, and the house was crowded. Sort of kind of like what we were here this morning when all these kids were in here. One of these days we've talked about maybe we're going to have to just open up the doors and the windows and people can be out on the balcony. You notice Rob has didn't want anybody tearing through the roof here, so he created some (laughs) sunroofs for us, skylights for us to be able to, if anybody needs to get in, we've, we've got a means to get them into the church. 
so, so the house is crowded. These four friends have heard the message. They, along with many others, had heard the testimony of John the Baptist that, that there is one that is coming after him who he didn't even have, he wasn't worthy to even tie his sandals. That the Messiah, the Son of God, was going to be coming. And they believed. And they knew that their friend, that they loved very much, could be healed by this man. And so they brought him. And the room was crowded and they didn't let that stop them. They had faith. They knew that they could just get this guy in front of Jesus, that he would be able to heal him. And as they let him down, and Jesus sees this man in need, sees this man who is unable to provide for himself at least. I don't know if he had a family. Um, Because he couldn't move his leg, he couldn't walk. He wouldn't have had access to a power chair like Tegan's God. He wouldn't have access to a a van that that, that could transport. He didn't have access to anything. In that time period, there was nothing you could do except beg and depend on everybody else. They wanted to see their friends set free. And Jesus saw the suffering that this man was in. And what does he do? What nobody expected. As we read through Mark, you got, you got to get used to this. Because Jesus is going to do this time and time again. Everybody comes to him with their expectations, the things that they are anticipating that he will do, and, and they, they come to him, and he does something completely different. The religious leaders came to be able to see if this, if this claim to Messiah, if he really had the, 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 the miraculous powers to make these kinds of healings. That's what they were. They were here to investigate. They wanted to get to the bottom of this to find out if this was the guy that was going to, to, to set the nation free from slavery to Rome, where they would become once again in the position where they were supposed to be that God had promised would be once and for all. The crowds were there for lots of different reasons. Some people came because they were in need. And they believed that Jesus could heal. There were many that were there that were liked a good show. There wasn't a lot of good things on TV around that time. And they wanted to see this amazing stuff that they had been hearing about. Everybody came with all different kinds of expectations. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. That was not what the religious leaders were expecting. But Jesus, understanding all of these these, uh, 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 anticipations that other people had on him. 
cut through all of that and got to the very heart of the human problem. Yeah, it's really inconvenient not to be able to get around with, with paralyzed legs. Yes, leprosy and being isolated from society is really hard. Yes, being poor and not being able to, to, to earn enough to provide for your family so that your kids are going hungry is a tragedy. It's a terrible thing. Being uh, oppressed by a foreign power, by, by a, a government that takes advantage of you, that, that steals money from your pocket through taxes, that, that, that puts laws and, and, and oppressive kind of expectations on you. Uh, that's a terrible way to live. But all of that fades when we understand the real problem with humanity, which is our sin. Of all of those other things that, that, that are, are important, That is the one issue that has eternal significance for us because it separates us from the God who created us for fellowship, to walk with him in the garden. And if there was anything that this man needed, it was first and foremost for his sins to be forgiven. Now, the the religious leaders, teachers of the law, those that are all there, they knew the implications of what Jesus was saying. They understood there was nobody who had the authority to be able to forgive sins except God himself. Unfortunately, in Mark's gospel, he he doesn't necessarily give us a sense of the tone of voice that these guys were questioning. It, It very well could have been anger. Very well could have been a righteous kind of, how dare you? But in the understanding of the Jewish people, especially of the religious elite, uh, there was debate about this. But there were many who read the Old Testament scriptures, the prophecies about the coming Messiah. And there were those who were of a mind to think that, that Messiah would indeed be God himself come to earth. That wasn't. Uh, an unfamiliar theology. There were those that would argue with that, that, that would, would suggest otherwise, but, but certainly there were those that would have anticipated. And so part of me almost thinks that some of these guys were saying this a little bit excited. What is this man saying? Doesn't he realize that that unless he truly is the Messiah, the divine one here come to earth to rescue us, that he's blaspheming. And that was with some anticipation and some excitement that maybe this truly was the Messiah. 
Maybe God had come to earth and was here to rescue us, to set us free. And there was some anticipation in that question. Jesus responds, he knows their heart. And he says, why do you question these things in your heart? And then he uses this title. And again, this is going to be something that we are going to become very familiar with throughout the story of Mark. This is Jesus' favorite title for himself. I, don't, I guess I don't know his favorite. This is the one he uses the most often for himself. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now for the Gentile audience that was listening to that, probably they were thinking that this was a, uh, an identification that Jesus was human. And that's partially, for sure, uh, something that we can glean from this. That, that when Jesus uses the title Son of Man, he is acknowledging that he is one of us, that he has taken on our human frailty as well, that, that he's in this with all of the, the weaknesses and the foibles and everything else that, that, that humanity has. He is a Son of Man. But for the, for the, for the discerning Jewish listener audience, this would trigger something that would tie in exactly to this understanding of who the Messiah was. And it points back to a dream that Daniel had. And if we're to understand this, we've got to go to Daniel to, to read more about what this is all going on. So Daniel chapter 7. This is in the midst of, of Daniel's dreams of the, of the four beasts. And he's having these prophetic dreams that God is giving him that is telling him what the future is holding for the, the, the land of Israel, the holy land, the different empires that are going to hold power and authority over the land throughout these next days, uh, through the coming centuries and, and years and everything else. Uh, and, and it's a, a powerful and... Uh, I don't want to get too much into all that because it's a whole other thing all to itself, but amazingly detailed. There are so many that discount that this could have actually been written or spoken by Daniel because the accuracy of these depictions of the different um, uh, empires that have sway over, uh, control over the land of Israel is so <laughs> spot on uh, that, that the critics will say, well, obviously somebody wrote this after. We're not going to get into that. They didn't, and there's proof for it not to be. But anyway, in the midst of this powerful testimony of what the future holds, Daniel has this vision. And starting at verse 9 of chapter 7 in Daniel. <clears throat> Daniel has a vision of the throne room of God. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Ancient of Days is a common Jewish phrase for Almighty God, Yahweh, the God of heaven. 
The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. The throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued out and came out before him. Thousands and thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousands stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. This is all very familiar images of the, the, the day of the Lord, the judgment of God, the, the presence of God in the holy places, and these descriptions of, of the perfection of God trying to, to, to frame it in, in language that humans can, can somehow wrap their heads around, of his purity, of his, of his truth, of the refining nature of his character, so on and so forth. These are, are wonderful images of the almighty God. Drop down to verse 13. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven. Now, whenever you read the clouds of heaven or the smoke, uh, all of those are images in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that, that are a reflection of the glory of God, the presence of God. Nobody else comes in the clouds of heavens except God himself. That is, that is part of our understanding of his nature. And one of the ways that, that the writers try and capture the amazingness, just the splendor of God, and they call the clouds of heaven. So, in the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. We've got two individuals here, right? We've got the Ancient of Days and we have one like the Son of Man and was presented before him. And to him, to the one who is like the Son of Man, was given dominion. Who has dominion but God himself? Only God. Was given glory. The Bible tells us that only God is the one who has glory and gave him a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him his dominion is everlasting there is no other son of man other than the eternal savior who could ever have an everlasting kingdom this is pointing back to the promise that, that God made to David about how his descendants would sit on the throne for all of eternity. Pointing again to the eternal nature, the divine nature of David's offspring, of the Messiah who would come and establish that kingdom once and for all. And here again we see this, this presence of this divine son of man that would have dominion, an everlasting dominion, which will, shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This was very much a passage that was understood to be speaking about the Messiah. Even in Jesus' day, they recognized that this was a messianic prophecy that spoke about the Messiah, and, and that was one of the understandings, is this would be a son of man. That takes us all the way back to the very first good news message that we have in the Bible, found in the curses that God was speaking out towards Adam and Eve. And in his, in his curse towards the serpent, he says that I will put enmity between your seed, the, servant's, the serpent's seed, and the seed of the woman. 
And that, and first we have this plural that there will be enmity between the, the seeds. And then all of a sudden it goes to the singular. And he shall crush your head. And you will bruise his heel. Already at the very, at the very fall of humanity, at the moment when we had abandoned our relationship with God, God already was giving us good news that it is going to be a human, just like the rest of you, who's going to be the means that God will use to rescue you from yourself, from the evil and the sin that holds you. And this message continues to play through all through the Old Testament scriptures. And and this is one of the passages where we understand that Messiah is God himself. That he is divine because he comes in the glory in the clouds of heaven. Only God comes in the clouds of heaven. And so when Jesus uses this, we go back to Mark, when he says, to show it to, to, uh, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He is aligning himself as the Son of Man with that one who is like a Son of Man. That he is the Messiah, the divine Messiah that has come to rescue them from their sins. And then he backs it up actually speaking to the man. Rise up, take up your bed, and go home. And then it says, and they were all amazed. Remember who that all includes. That's also the Pharisees. All the Pharisees from Galilee, from Judea and Jerusalem that had all come to this place to hear. That was the teachers of the law. All of those that came from the religious center of Jerusalem and came out to test to see if this was indeed the Messiah. They had received his calling card and now they were checking him out. And they all glorified God. You know what that means? At this moment, at this point in the story, that all of those that were there that saw what Jesus did were ready to acknowledge that this was the Messiah. That this was God come to earth to rescue them. They had determined in their heart that this is true. If we miss that, the next couple of chapters are going to to lose some of the horrific tragedy that within one page, chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. I don't want to give too much away of upcoming sermons. How did they go from glorifying God to wanting to destroy him in less than a chapter? 
it's, it's like a weight. I don't know if you ever feel this weight, but in the, the, the scene in front of Pilate, where Pilate gives them the opportunity, gives the people the opportunity to release Jesus and, and condemn Barabbas. And what do they do? They choose the thief, the rebel, the criminal, the insurrectionist over this man of peace. And Pilate says, are you nuts? There's nothing I can find against this man. He's done nothing wrong. And what do they say? Let his blood be on us and our children. Can you imagine? Oh, I'm sorry. At this moment, they believe. Now, I said that Jesus, when he forgave this man's sins, that nobody was expecting that. I think that's wrong. I think there is somebody who knew that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. As we go through the rest of Mark, there is no other point that Jesus says to anybody, your sins are forgiven. If we look in the other Gospels, there is one other time Jesus, in his interaction, he went to the, the, uh, the Pharisee's uh, house, Simon, and, and to have dinner there. And while they were having dinner, there was this woman, this sinner. Don't give details about her sin, but in some of the story, we can kind of assume that she had a loose lifestyle, whether it was as a prostitute or whatever. We don't know for sure, but... Jesus should have known when he saw her, according to the Pharisees that were with him, that she was a sinful person. He had nothing, he should have nothing to do with her. And yet, she comes in and weeps on his feet. Dries his feet off with her hair. In this beautiful, pure act of worship takes this perfume, this expensive perfume, and pours it over his feet. And Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has made you free. (laughs) The only other time that you could take from Jesus' words that he was saying your sins are forgiven was while he was hanging on the cross. And again, it's only found in Luke. But there is one of the other criminals that's hanging there next to him. And that man chastises the other who's mocking Jesus and he says, this man has done nothing. And what does he say? Looks to Jesus and says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. What did that criminal believe about who Jesus was? Why would he be put in his 
trust in, a, in another man who's obviously about to die. Why would he put it? Because he believed that this was the Son of God. This was the divine Messiah that had come to set them free. And he believed. If those are the only examples of Jesus directly saying to somebody or implying your sins are forgiven, then I have to believe that this paralyzed man, hearing the stories about Jesus, believed that this was the divine Son of God, the divine Messiah. And he and his friends all had faith that Jesus could forgive sins, that he would be the one that would would rescue them from the sinful darkness within each one of our hearts. Why else would Jesus say your sins are forgiven if his faith wasn't in that? There are people around this world who believe all kinds of things about who Jesus is. They believe he's a good man. They believe he was uh, a great teacher. Some people believe even that he was able to do miracles or magic, whatever, you, whatever they might call it. None of that belief is going to result in somebody being saved from their sins. The only way that we hear from Jesus that your sins are forgiven is if we believe that he is the Son of God that he came to die on our behalf, that he sacrificed to pay the penalty for our sin, and he's come to set us free. That's the faith that results in forgiven sins. So everybody else had expectations, but I don't think the man or his friends were surprised by Jesus' words, your sins are forgiven. Something else about this passage that I think brings, brings me great hope. I think it's something else that we can hold on to. Do you see why Jesus said your sins are forgiven? Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, clearly in the Greek it is a plural uh, part of speech, I don't know, whatever, grammar thing. That it's speaking not just about the paralyzed man, but he looked at the friends and saw their faith. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. We all have people in our lives that we love, that we care about, who are far from God. Our faith that Jesus can set them free from their sin has eternal significance in those people's lives. That somehow, and I don't fully understand it, But somehow, when Jesus looks at our faith, he's going to be able to say to those people, come, find rest. 
find new life. And their sins will be forgiven. Don't ever, don't ever give up praying. Don't ever give up hoping. Don't ever give up trusting that no matter how horrible the choices, how rebellious the behavior, that your faith won't somehow help that person discover new life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, right now, those faces are once again flashing in front of my eyes and probably many here. Those that we love, those that we care about, our, our, our neighbors, our family, our friends, co-workers. There is nothing too big for you. There is no one who is too far gone that you can't rescue. There is none that are so darkened that your light can't penetrate. So this morning, God, in faith in you, we pray for those. Trust that you will set them free. And as always, we give ourselves to be used by you as messengers of the good news into their lives. Help us to know what to say, what to do, what not to say, what not to do. Help us to keep our eyes focused on you and follow where you lead because you never make a mistake. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you that you, you are worthy enough. You are of such infinite value that your sacrifice is able to cover an infinite amount of our sin. To you be all the praise and all the glory. Amen.